Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin. The Center for Africana Studies is a resource housed in CAS, but available for all OSU students, faculty, and staff to gain knowledge about Africa and its diaspora. That obviously covers a lot, so the Center's new director, Dr. Erica Townsend-Bell, has a big job. She joins me on this episode to talk about that, race-related issues both in America and globally, and why the terms used on the census form are more important than you might think. This is Black History Month. I'm curious your thoughts on Black History Month. Is that, a, is that a good thing? Would it be better to sort of have it be more incorporated throughout the year? I think both and, which is my answer to all kinds of questions usually. So um, I think it is helpful to have a month or at least a sort of a particular chunk of time in which we are more explicitly focused on the contributions of Blacks to sort of the past, present, and of course, the future of the United States. So in that way, I think, you know, that that was the impetus for the for the week, which, of course, um, eventually turned into a sort of a dedicated month. But obviously, we want to not limit ourselves to simply one month of the year and the shortest month of the year at that, uh, which I think is not gone unnoted by many, many people uh, historically. And there's two reasons for that. One, of course, is that there's just there's a large story to tell. I think for most people, myself included, frankly, we remain under underinformed about the breadth uh, and the depth of contributions of Black Americans to the history and to the scaffolding of this country. The other reason I think that what we, we want to really sort of focus on making sure that we embed this attention throughout the year is that one thing that Black History Month still suffers from is a an individualism, right? So especially for people of my generation and, and older than me, but I think this remains the case even for younger generations, we continue to focus on particular important individuals in Black history. And it's important to focus on them, but what that loses for us is the broader uh, work of the collective, right? And the way in which um, the fabric of Black communities really also speaks to the history, uh, to the present and the future uh, of our nation. And I think the only way to get around that is to be intentional about it. But I also think one of the ways that we disrupt that approach is to be focusing on on these kinds of questions much more um, consistently, right? Because then I think we begin to pull that in as a much more central part of the discussion. Uh, That's an interesting point. It makes me think of, uh, I recently watched the movie Harriet uh, with my wife and children. And my children said, before we watched it, my son, who's 10, said, yeah, she founded the Underground Railroad. And I said, well, no, she participated in the in the Underground Railroad and did a lot with it, but I don't believe she founded it. And of course, watching the movie, and I'm not a historian, but knowing what little I know, I was right. The Underground Railroad's a lot of people, mm-hmm. but for my ten year old, the Underground Railroad is Harriet Tubman. Right. Full uh, stop. Right. Right. And and it's important that you know about her and what she did was amazing, but it's also important to understand there were a lot of people risking their lives and, and doing these great things. So that, that is an interesting point and one I hadn't really thought of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we, we need to know that for all kinds of reasons, I mean, for the historical record, but also because that's what helps us to understand our own capacity for agency, right? We can't all be Harriet Tubman. We can't all be Martin Luther King, but that doesn't mean that we can't make a really important difference mm-hmm. um, in our communities and in the ways that we can, and that we haven't been doing that, right? So the sort of, and attention to that is not the same thing as a lack of that um, capacity for agency. We want to really, really make that clear. 
this discussion about the group collective leads me to my next question about uh, you are the director of the Center for Africana Studies. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, myself included, I didn't know what that was. I do now, having spoken with you before and read about it. Um, but can you explain what that is? Yeah, the Center for Africana Studies. Do you mean the Africana Studies piece the, or the Africana piece in particular, I, meant, I imagine? the Well, let, let's talk about both. Okay. Well, the Center is one of our many interdisciplinary centers on campus where we bring together faculty, students, um, and staff who have an interest in Black life broadly defined, right? So that's that's the sort of the basics uh, of the center. Our intention anyway is that there's a definite community footprint, but it's a primarily academically defined center. So it organizes a, a minor uh, in the College of Arts and Sciences uh, and programming um, uh, in particular around, again, anything related to Black life. Africana Studies takes the same vein. There, but it actually is, I don't know if it, it might be something like close to half and half, or at least there is a, a large contingent of programs at universities in the United States that are um, Black studies or African-American studies. You know, they've evolved over the years. Most of these departments, all of these departments have their histories in the civil rights movement. So we're going to see some, some shift in language, but around Black Americans, um, broadly speaking. And then there are a contingent uh, of which OSU is a part of uh, universities that have centers or programs or majors around Africana studies, which speaks to centrally still, I mean, we're all focused on, you know, the, the U.S. part of the story is really, is always critically important and it's a central element, but we also recognize the ways in which if what we want to talk about is Blackness, Black life, and all of its dimensions, that the Afro-descendant population, so that is those peoples who are descended from Africa and typically from slavery, right, from the, the transatlantic slave trade, ended up all over the world. Um, and in fact, most people don't know this. We, we focus a lot on slavery so much. I mean, to your point about Harriet Tubman being the Underground Railroad, I think for a lot of people, slavery is this thing that happened in the United States. Mm-hmm. In fact, a little under half a million people were brought to the United States through the transatlantic slave trade, while about 10 million went to Latin America. Wow. So there is a massive Afro-descendant population that is directly descended from the slave trade. And of course, then a variety of migratory flows since then. Uh, so what we might call a series of great migrations, um, to quote Ira Berlin, who was actually um, uh, one of the first to point this out, uh, African descendant peoples around the world. And so when we talk about Blackness and we think about Blackness and all of its dimensions, there's a critical component, uh, again, that's focused on the U.S. But what the Center for Africana Studies does and what in particular Africana Studies points to and, and recognizes is the ways in which these flows are really global. And if what we want to understand is Blackness in all its dimensions, and we need to be thinking about its other locations and its, its other variations as well. That number is is staggering. You said 10 million versus half a million? Yes. That's, yeah, <laughs> that is staggering. Yeah. And I know from our conversation before, before this podcast, there's the academic component. There's also a community component, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to be visible in the community and with the community. Yes. And that's very much still in development. It's, I don't know that it's fair to say that it's a new um, vision. I think that it's always been there, but we're sort of teasing out what that means. And by we, I sort of mean me, because right now the center, <laughs> the center is technically, we have two members of the center. We have just brought on an associate director, Lawrence Ware, who has served as um, director, co-director for Africana Studies in the past. So, and we'll be hiring some faculty and staff soon. So I'm very excited that I will soon no longer be kind of the only one or that I already am and, and, will, and, and will be growing and, and, and folks who can have some input in this way. But the, the idea here is surely to be, you know, 
academia, academia is a job. And especially at a land grant institution, our job is to be co-conspirators of knowledge, really, and collaborators of knowledge with, with anybody who has an expertise. And surely, if we're talking about the dimensions of Blackness and Black life, we, we would not be so, we wouldn't be so certain of that, that only people who are in the university setting could have an expertise in this way, right? Mm. And so the goal is not just to be in community, but the goal is to be in community, is to be in community. So that is to say that we are co-collaborating on knowledge. You know, obviously it makes sense, right? This is going to be in regards to particular projects that are going to be, and they're going to need to be of interest to community members. But what we want to do is engage with anybody who has an interest in the African diaspora and wants to produce some knowledge in that regard, whether it be artistic, in writing, poetry, visual, whatever form that takes. And just for our listeners, you mentioned Lawrence Ware. We interviewed him, featured him on episode 28, okay. which really was about, uh, we were kind of talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and social unrest this summer. And uh, mm-hmm. for me, for me personally, a very interesting episode because he and I are very close in age and both Oklahomans. And of course, I'm white and he's black. And so the ways that our experience has been different was right. very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah. When I interviewed you before for an article, uh, mm-hmm. a point you made that really stood out to me was you were talking about minorities and we tend to use minorities to mean numbers, but mm-hmm. you were saying really it, we shouldn't think that way. We should think about minorities as a group with less power. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And, and I may have said this before, but I think the, the really obvious way to bring this point home and, you know, somebody who's um, a Latin Americanist and a sort of a scholar of race globally is to look at the South African case, right, where I think this point is the most apparent, right? We have a large majority Black population in South Africa, we always have. And clearly that does not translate or never did translate to a large majority Black population in terms of who had power in South mm-hmm. Africa, right? And apartheid makes that really, really apparent. So that's probably the most um, obvious example. And I think what we take from that um, recognition is that we want to take care with two things. One, with precisely to this point, presuming that just because you are a numeric minority or a numeric majority, that this translates to you having voice and power within a society. I think the other thing that we that we recognize uh, those who study race, especially globally and have watched the ways in which this has developed. We have cases like the US and South Africa that are built on very explicit segregation and that have to do a lot of work to uphold that. It's actually much trickier than you think to delineate who constitutes white or black, say for instance, mm. right? So if you look at the racial history of the United States, there are court cases, there are Supreme Court cases in some, in many instances, in fact, with people challenging their racial designation and the court eventually having to decide for them Essentially, are they in the majority or in the minority? What does that tell us? It tells us that these terms that we take for granted as neutral kind of demographic terms, right? And if we think about this in the language of the census, for instance, they will, you know, census demographers will tell you the same thing, but there are constant battles about how do we actually create and construct these categories. And as a result, it becomes clear that we are creating minorities and we are creating majorities. You know, so we see this in the U.S., for instance, again, in a variety of dimensions, first in the introduction of a Hispanic category which is a category that most people take for granted now as a meaningful one, a real one, and it is. But it's not a category that exists formally until the 1960s when the census introduces it, right? There was a debate, especially coming up to around the 2000 census and that continued in the 2010 census around whether mixed race could be a formal category, whether you could choose more than one box, right? This is actual creation. So it's, 
we hear this and I think we often think about it in an, in an abstract way, or that's just, you know, sort of academics just kind of throwing, you know, language around, but we can see how this translates when it comes to these kinds of questions quite really uh, in terms of, in, in many cases, literally, do you exist or not, right? Can, mm-hmm. do you get counted or not? As a Latin Americanist, this has been a really interesting thing to watch as well, because it has not been the norm for Latin American countries to ask about race on the census at all. And they have now shifted to doing so mostly because of international pressure and domestic pressure. And so again, what we are watching happening is new groups essentially exist, if you will, from the perspective of the state and be recognized as a group in a way historically that they had not been. So in in all kinds of places, you know, you can sort of pick your location in the world. You can watch in very active real time categories develop and morph and and think about the ways in which that translates um, to this notion of who's in the majority and who's in the minority. I'll say one more thing about this. One of the, the questions and debates that we've been having in the United States around these questions is around the, the tipping point at which the U.S. will no longer be a majority white population. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the presumption is that this will happen because, in particular, a Latino majority will grow, which ignores all kinds of things. One, that there are um, Afro-Latinos, and so how do we understand them? Uh, and that's a large population and one that goes undercounted frequently. That Latinos themselves that Latino or Hispanic, whichever term, or Latinx, any of the the gradations of of terms that people use to identify, none of them speak to race. They are ethnic terms, right? So when people are asked to check a box on the census about their race, they are asked to choose white or black or Asian or Hawaiian, et cetera. And then secondarily, you are asked, are you Hispanic or not? So this notion that we're going to see some major tip is not at all clear to me that we're going to see it at all and when we might see it. It's much less apparent than I think most people take for granted because the, their understanding of how these categories work is distinct from how we actually count them mm. uh, and, how, and more fundamentally how people identify in the first place. That leads me to think of so many things, including the fact that I was an enumerator for the census in 2000 when I was mm. a freshman at OSU. Uh, and I remember them telling me, as if, for anybody who doesn't know, as an enumerator, my job, I, I was one of many, but if you didn't send in your census, I was the person who would come and knock on your door and say, hey, you didn't send in your census. Let me help you fill that out. And right. be as nice as possible about it. Mm-hmm. But they said, whatever someone tells you their race is, that's what you put. Don't argue right. with them. That is a self-designated thing. And uh I thought that was really interesting. I think that's, of course, the right way to do it, because who am I to argue with anyone about what they say they are, um, who they say they are? But I also thought that that thought that that was an interesting concept. Like, I'm not going to assume that you are this. You right. tell me and I will put it there. Uh, right. That was uh, interesting. Yeah. A long history of the opposite. Such right. Time you came along that it had to be very clearly communicated that you may not choose for this person, because that had not been the historical way in which it had been carried out. Well, yes, and then I fall back on my uh, knowledge of um, American slavery, chattel slavery, and uh, I'm afraid I'm going to get the details wrong here, but there was a specific designation about if you had one Black grandparent, great-grandparent? I think it went back even farther than that. Okay, Um, which is also amazing, like... Someone can go, no, I'm white. All of my family is white. And they say, yeah, but you've got this ancestor we're aware of that wasn't white. Uh Okay. How do you even prove that? 
you know, you'd be, there was a case about this as late as the early 1980s. There was a woman wow. who had identified as white her whole life who the court essentially said, no, you weren't. Based on these statutes, no, in fact, you're not. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, yeah. to that recently, I was born in 81. So right. uh, that's, that's just amazing. And uh, yeah. issues like that, I can't help but think, uh, and as a white guy, I would think this, maybe I hope it's getting better. I think it's, I think it's continuing to evolve. You know, again, I think the the part that's getting better is precisely to the point that you made about being, you know, your, your experience as an enumerator. I think we are much more cognizant. It is not anyone's job, responsibility, privilege, whatever language you'd like to use to determine for somebody else how they identify. But I think what we miss is the identification part. What's, what does that mean? That there's a way in which you're perceived that might be distinct from how you understand yourself. Mm. And we see this in interpersonal relationships, you know, so we see it, you know, in terms of how people get treated at the grocery store or whatever the case may be. Uh, and we see it again in terms of any formal documentation. It is true that you could not choose for that person. It is also true that that person could not choose a box that didn't exist on the census. Right? True. And in many cases, or at least in some of those cases, the reason the box didn't exist is not because nobody ever raised it, but because somebody, you know, in the, in the there was a fight about it. And the Census Bureau eventually said, no, we're not going to put that box on. Right. We don't mm-hmm. know if it's a sort of an important enough category, a distinct enough category, et cetera, that we need a separate box for it. And so in, in essence then it doesn't exist, right? You can't be counted in that way. One of the one of the most recent versions of this, there's been some really interesting work um, by Muslims who are interested in really kind of visiting the MENA category. So Middle East, North Africa category and an inability to really differentiate among that group because there are not sort of a sufficient number of boxes for them to check, right? Wow. Yeah. And those issues, I mean, we're becoming not only a more diverse society, but Individuals, I would say, are becoming more diverse. Someone being multiracial is more and more common, right? At, at, or at least considering themselves multiracial. Mm-hmm. And so that is going to be an issue for more and more people where they go, no, there's not enough boxes or my category is not there. Right. Versus 100 years ago, 200 years ago, where it's it, it was considered pretty simple. You're in this category A or category B. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum because you could imagine an, a, an end where we stop trying to have boxes. <laughs> yeah, what right. We know, what we know, I mean, and like I said, in the, we had that for you know decades, um, for almost a century in many cases in Latin America. This is precisely why they didn't have those boxes. But what has what becomes apparent is that there can be all kinds of conversations about how you identify, but this point about how you identify, right, and how you are grouped anyway, it became apparent that there was a real there was a real lack because. Afro-Latinos in particular, indigenous Latin Americans could not um, back up their claims around discrimination and differential treatment with data because mm-hmm. there were some categories to check. There were some boxes to check. So they would know, you know, living in their neighborhoods and their lives that, you know, we're not employed in the same way. We don't have access to the same kinds of resources, right? The, the, the sort of the differential treatment is still there, whether you call it out or not. But it's hard to do. It's harder to call it out if you can't back it up with some statistical data. Yeah. And um, I mentioned Lawrence Ware a minute ago. I know part of our discussion was, of course, that was kind of in the wake of what happened with George Floyd, the George Floyd tragedy. And he made a point, and I strongly believe this. He said, what happened with George Floyd has been happening forever. Mm -hmm. The the difference is now more people are seeing it. Exactly. People who don't live in these communities are seeing it because there's cameras, there's phones everywhere. And yeah, if you can't show that this is happening, 
I think it's real easy for people who aren't directly affected to go, oh, come on. Right. You're, you're not really being discriminated against. You just feel like you are. Absolutely. It both, it, it speaks to that. And I think it also, it just opens up the imagination. I mean, in a really sad way, right? It's, and I think there's, there's that contingent who were, who were disbelieving in another who, you know, when things are abstract, it's just hard to kind of really wrap your head around it, right? So it's like, I believed you, but I didn't really, I wasn't able to really understand or to feel it, right? And to, until I saw it. And now, not only do I believe you, but I feel engaged, right? I feel committed to, we've got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And if anything is going to happen, it's going to be tipping among that population, not the oh, come ons, because generally speaking, I think we might understand that once you would say, oh, come on to be unconcerned, <laughs> unconcerned before and probably unconcerned now. Right. Um, but that middle population is where we want to see the shift. Talking about terms, talking about characterizations, Latinx versus Hispanic. Another mm-hmm. one that in my lifetime I have seen sort of go back and forth is, say, Black right. versus African-American. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts on the way those terms change? Because certainly you ask my grandparents what terms they would use and they'd be different. And even people today, they might use certain terms that we would all agree are not the right terms to use, but that does (laughs) shift over time. I'm just curious what you think about the terms we use to characterize certain groups. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what we are constantly seeing in these shifting terms is, is this uh, this is the struggle for representation, right? And it's, you know, kind of back to our, our conversation precisely around minorities, majority versus majorities and, and, and the power relations embedded in that. Uh, and so what we are seeing constantly are populations trying to make claims to what identifies them better. How do we secure that representation in the public sphere? So that's what's always being debated. And of course, I mean, I think we know this both at the individual level, as we've discussed, you know, you, nobody wants to, to do the work of saying, you can't be what you tell me you are. <laughs> right? If you give me a term, that's what we're gonna, that's what I'm going to call you. That's going to be the end of it. So it's a well. I, I, I was going to say it's a little more straightforward at the individual level. It is sometimes and sometimes not. Right? We, we've seen a different, very different version of this fight when it comes to instance for um, you know sort of trans and queer mm-hmm. um, identification. So even that is not always nearly so straightforward. But I think that we're also seeing this happening at a collective level, right? This sort of attempt to collectively define who we are, and there we, of course, we get into a little bit of. Some hiccups because precisely this great variation, you know, we, we take for granted that these terms describe a population singular. What they do is they describe peoples within the population who, of course, themselves vary greatly, right, mm-hmm. and have a, a great amount of diversity. So, for instance, and I think this is especially noted with the term, for instance, Latinx, which is one that some people are very um, committed to and some are not interested in at all, right? You know, I'm, I meet pretty routinely folks who are like, yeah, no, I'm Latino, right? I'm Latino, I'm Latina, I'm, I'm Hispanic, I'm, you know, Latinx is not this thing that I identify with, not necessarily because they're poo-pooing it, but it just doesn't speak to them. And I think you see similar claims. I mean, personally, for me, I, I totally understand and, and value the term African-American. I almost always use the term Black. And if I'm talking about myself, I almost routinely use the term Black. Mm. I don't think there's anything wrong with African-American, but I don't personally feel a great connection to it. And it's interesting, my husband and I have had a conversation about this. Ideally, what I think we would go back to is using the term Afro. If part of what we are trying to speak to precisely is this connected diasporic roots that we have, Afro tends to, I think, do that best among the sort of the terms that have been popular over the last you know, several decades. Right. So it's just it's an interesting conversation or series of conversations, because when we begin to unpack the shifting in the terms, we can see the work that all of these terms is trying to do, and sometimes a pretty fraught context to boot. To make a point that I believe I've made on this podcast before, I'm a communicator. I have a 
undergraduate and master's degree, both in communication. And a point I like to make to people is when you're talking about terms, I think it's important to use the proper words in general when you're communicating. And it's important to use the words that the person hearing will understand. Yes. And if you're not being sensitive to what terms matter to someone, they're going to get hung up on this word or that word and not hear what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So I am always personally, I'm always happy to use whatever terms will most speak to that person rather than going, whatever, you know, you're just being hypersensitive. No, no, no. I want you to hear what I'm saying. We're communicating and I want you to hear this instead of getting hung up on that. I use this word or that word or whatever. So I am happy to go, okay, this is the word that we're using. Fine. Let's do that. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. and I have seen some terms change even in my lifetime. And uh, often I'm going, okay, hold on, which term are we using now? Because I want to make sure I'm using the right one. Right. And I think that's the critical the critical bit. I mean, it is, I think this echoes part of our conversation earlier as well, right? You have some folks who are not interested <laughs> and they're not, they're not the ones we're going to move. I yeah. think you have another population in this case who is leery about asking because they feel like they're supposed to know. Yeah. And I, I think generally speaking, if you are asking and you are clearly doing it in good faith, people are not offended by that, right? You know, I would just encourage any listeners, I suppose, right? If you've ever found yourself not sure which the right term was to use and and not, you know, using the wrong term or using no term as a result, which is equally problematic, just mm. ask. Just ask in a, you know, in a thoughtful way, you know, would, how would you like me to refer to you? You get your answer and there you go. You've mentioned Latin America several times and I know that is an area of research for you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about that. How did how did that become an area that you were interested in? Um, it was a fairly roundabout way. I always tell students when they ask me how I got to grad school in my career that it was mostly laziness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I went to, you know, this the pretty brief version. I went to Xavier University of Louisiana, a great HBCU in New Orleans. It's a classic liberal arts cur- curriculum, six hours of just about everything, including languages. I had taken a lot of Spanish in high school and was pretty sick of it, honestly. And so I tried to shortcut my way through the six hours through sort of a, it was a formal shortcut mechanism they had. It didn't work. Not only did it not work, I ended up double majoring in Spanish and studying abroad in Spain. Um, (laughs) So I spoke Spanish. I didn't necessarily, I was interested in political science and the PhD, didn't necessarily want to continue to focus on Spain and had a general interest in race and gender. And actually, I think I had that interest to one of your earlier questions, because at an HBCU, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, mostly you don't take classes that explicitly feature race, but it's just a much more kind of integrated, um, right? To our Black History Month question, it's a much more integrated part of the curriculum. So you're taking English, or you're taking, you know, your math class or your history class, and then this is just much more central part of any of those conversations. And so I think it kind of trickled over to me in that way. And so I just went really kind of casting about. I thought, okay, well, I'm interested in race and gender and I speak some Spanish and I like to study the world. I think Latin America seems like a good. And it's got such a rich racial history and one that's both on its face, very different from the, from the history of the United States, the, the approach to questions of race, race and racialization of the U.S. And yet, I mean, to that point that I made, for instance, about what happens even if you don't you know, have a box on the census around race. I think what fascinates me endlessly about race in Latin America and broadly around the globe is how much it to some degree doesn't matter how you approach it. The outcomes are the same. We can tell the same stories. You pick any place in the world. We can tell the same stories about power majorities, minorities, 
you know, who's racialized, you know, how these groups are formed, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just kind of amazing. When we talk about race and politics, uh-huh. I can't help but think about the election of Barack Obama. And I did feel like race was a pretty explicit issue in that election. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, we had Donald Trump. And now we have Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And I've heard a lot of pointing out Kamala Harris as our first woman as a vice president, our first African-American vice president, and our first Indian-American vice president. But I, I didn't notice, maybe I just don't pick up on it, but I didn't notice her race being as much of an issue during the campaign as certainly as it was with Barack Obama, probably partially because he was running for president versus VP and because he had already done it by the time she came along. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like maybe that shows some progress on that issue. And I'm curious what you think as a political scientist. I understand that that's not necessarily directly your area, but I'm curious what you think. Sure. You know, that's a great question. I do think that presidential versus, you know, m- one of many potential um, possibilities, you know, w- when we were looking at the primary and, and kind of waiting to see how this would all fall out. And of course, she was, well, just about everybody was very temporarily a front runner, but she wasn't a front runner in a, in a long term, like it seemed quite likely. So I think part of this really is just, she's an important, you know, political figure, but it wasn't really clear that she was going to rise to the level of candidacy. And I mean, it's a wonderfully amazing. I mean, I just really am so excited for this, um, that she's that she's vice president. And of course, we'll wait to see, you know, how that translates both um, in her tenure as vice president and then where she goes after. Right. And so I think maybe the the short answer that I would give is I don't know that we have an answer to that yet, because I don't think we've gotten to the stage. She's not at Obama's stage yet. And of course, there's this question of whether she she will be. I would love to be wrong. I expect that if she does rise to the presidency, we will absolutely see some of the same uh, issues that we saw with uh, Obama's presidency rise under her tenure and more because she's a woman. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have this gendered aspect. I would love to, again, I'd love to be wrong. I mean, it's, and, and I think she's she's got the chops to do it. But boy, it's going to be a heady job. Right. Because, you know, we, we we've gone through this debate about are we ready for our first female president? And you you add a woman of color as the commander in chief. And I think it's going to be awesome and awe-inspiring and very challenging for her. Okay. Let me ask you some more about the Center for Africana Studies. It's not only a resource for Black students and scholars, right? If I was getting a PhD and interested in something that the center covered, that'd be a resource for me. Absolutely. Yes. So it's a resource for the entire university community. Its fundamental position is anybody who has any interest in Blackness and Black life. I just got an email the other day from somebody in a student group in agriculture. They're looking for somebody who can help with like a Moroccan culinary thing, which I wish I could help them with. We don't, as far as I know, have um, somebody who could, right? But I thought, you know, it was a great request, right? I was like, oh yeah, if we had somebody, I'd like, hey, we talk with them. So yeah, it is anything related to, as I said, to, to, to Blackness and Black life. I mean, that's a, that's its a, a, a central posture, you know, calling it Africana Studies does also bring in anything to do with the, con- the African continent. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in theory, that that's really going to be reliant on who do we have in the university community, right? Mm-hmm. Who can speak to, you know, <laughs> questions about, you know, geology, right? In in Tanzania, for instance, right? And I don't know if we have somebody who can talk to them or not. So that, you know, and it's going to be developing those connections, but all of those are fair game. We do want to really gratify to say that we will, we will have a center, a, a physical center, similar to the Center for Sovereign Nations, for instance, that we are very much in the process of creating and hoping that it will be a space of home, mm-hmm. right? So 
for, again, for anybody who would like to, but especially for Black students, Black faculty, Black staff, students of color who want to just come and be in that space. We have that, that goal and we'll, you know, we'll have small talks there and various kinds of programming and a space to just really kind of cultivate connection. But again, that's the idea. And that is something that we do want to center as a goal, as we simultaneously say that that does not mean that it's exclusive. And so whoever comes in and feels like they want to try to create a little version of home uh, on the university campus in that space should do so, right? And we'll be very welcome. Uh, my office is on the second floor of Life Sciences East. So mm-hmm. um, I am always going by, especially the Center for Sovereign Nations. And I can tell you, when you talk about community, that's what I see there. First of all, it smells great on, I believe it's Fridays when they're having their, their meal, they're serving. Oh, right, yeah. Um, they're outside playing bags. They're laughing and studying and doing things inside. And to have that, something like that with your center, I think would be a wonderful thing. So, yeah. Yeah, we are very excited. It's been a long dream of, you know, of my forebears, if you will, uh, as the directors to have a space, to have a physical space. It's a challenge on on OSU's campus. A lot of the the interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary programs that serve you know, students and that are, you know, kind of thinking about these broad questions around race, around gender, around identity, don't have physical locations, right? And so um, to, to be able to, to have an, an open and hopefully inviting space is just really exciting. It sure seems to me that the university has put a lot of emphasis on diversity, inclusion, equity, all of these areas. And I'm not saying necessarily that they didn't in the past, but I know right now they are, and we see things like renaming North Murray and Murray Hall and Black Lives Matter protest and things like that that are being supported by the administration in, yes. in very visibly. And mm-hmm. I, I certainly think that's beneficial for a university community, for everybody to feel welcome. Absolutely. Yes. And I think, again, to kind of pick up on a thread that we've touched on, to, you know, a couple of times, right, it's really it's doing two things over time. What it should do is both make a, an explicit, you know, you are welcome here to students of color uh, to, you know, whatever kind of, um, you know, maybe more marginalized or non-normative, if you will, population they may come from. It's also just building in the fabric. Right. So to your point about the renaming of Murray, um, the College of Human Sciences just renamed formally one of their buildings for Nancy Randolph Davis. Yeah. Right. Um, her statue's been out in front of the building for a few years now, and then now the, the building is formally named that. And what does that mean for students who know who she is or who will learn about her as, you know, during their time at OSU? There may be this sense of, I, I feel represented. For other students, uh, what there will hopefully be is a sense of, this is just part of the fabric of the university community, right? So it's not, it doesn't have to sort of rest always just on the sort of calling them out as this one wonderful, great person, which of course she was. Mm. Uh, we don't want to take away from that at all but it also builds into this notion that it's simply part of who all of us are. It kind of lines up with when we're talking about Black History Month and the idea of, well, in Black History Month, we talk about Martin Luther King and George Washington Carver and, you know, and then the rest of the year, we don't, mm-hmm. right? Versus integrating these important figures throughout the year in the curriculum. Right. That's really, I mean, there are many reasons that I am very proud and really, really, really happy all these years later with my decision to attend an HBCU. And one of them is really to this point about integration. And so I was a political science and Spanish major and an English minor. So I did take a ton of classes and we read a lot of literature and I had, um, you know, wonderful, wonderful professors. And we read George Eliot, who is one of my favorite authors still. 
we read a lot of those sort of classics by either white males or people who we thought were white males until we learned late, you know, so for instance, in regard to George Eliot. And we also read post-colonial literature, right? So we were reading Gayatri Spivak at the same time, and we were reading Frantz Fanon at the same time, Alexander Dumas, and we were thinking about those authors in conversation with one another, which is what I think ideally we would be doing more broadly when we think about what constitutes the classics and how do we understand classics and how our sort of relation to it and our framing of it evolving, right? It's, it's certainly not that we want to ignore the really important contributions of those, you know, sort of white, you know, primarily white male authors. And I'm going to be real blunt. I'm probably going to get some pushback about this, right? But those who, you know, wrote really great works and those who I imagine, I understand that people think it's great, but I just don't get Catcher in the Rye. I have read it three times. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> I don't really like The Great Gatsby either, which is another book that I've, you know, read and engaged with in a meaningful way a couple of times. I appreciate that it was really, really resounding for some, but just didn't do that for me. And I have heard many other people, <laughs> I've heard other people have found similar, <laughs> similar positions. So I know I'm not totally alone, uh, but still important and read and to engage with, right? So, um, so what we, we want to do that, but what we want to not do, and, and what I think was really gratifying about my undergraduate education is that we did not place them on a pillar all by themselves as the only literature worth engaging with. Uh, and that would have the capacity to teach us something about the human condition, which is fundamentally why we're reading any of that stuff, right? So if we want to understand the human condition, then it's, it stands to reason we would want to engage with the variety of community. And, you know, so, so we need to, you know, we need to read Chinoa Achebe, right? At the same time that we're reading George Eliot. Your point about books that didn't speak to you also I think is interesting because I always say like art broadly it's subjective I do think that's important that I personally don't love uh Picasso's work that doesn't mean it's not important right Absolutely. but that, but that also means that I'm not going to um have a poster of it in my house because that's not important to me it's not pleasing to me I guess is the better way to put it so um right. Yeah, absolutely. I have this conversation with my kids all the time, right? We can, we had recognized all kinds of things are important, even if, you know, I don't, I don't value it individually, but I recognize that it has value, yeah. even if it doesn't speak to me. Yeah. I'd like to thank Dr. Townsend Bell for joining me. If you'd like to contact us, you can email pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. Remember, there's no T in Pokes Podcasts. And now we'll end with our favorite question. How do the arts and sciences make the world a better place? I think arts and science, I mean, kind of picking up on my, my last point, what does arts and sciences do and what's its role broadly is, again, it, to help us to understand the great variation and the really kind of the innovativeness of humanity, right? You get it all within this lovely little it's not little, it's quite broad and buried itself, right? I think in reflection of this, right? But in this, in this nutshell of arts and sciences, right? So, you know, scientific discovery in regard to what do we know about the planets and the solar system and the universe? What do we know about the human body? And then once we know something about the human body, how's that human body and those brains engaged with the world around it through the artistic forms, through literary forms? How do we, in the social sciences, you know, what we are mostly interested in the social sciences is, you know, with the exception of psychology, which is really rooted around, primarily around individual behaviors, and to some degree, how that connects to collectives. And then the rest of us in the social sciences, I would say, are broadly linked by our, our interest in that question of how do humans engage in social and political and economic life collectively, which is really what drives our, our interest, right? So we get touch points of all of this really wonderful variation. And of course, not wonderful 
variation, right? You know, so whether it's sort of uh, more positive valence or negative, either way it goes, we are engaging with the ways in which humanity uh, and with humans engage with one another, with the world and the world around them. And it's just, it's obviously pretty central to our understanding of ourselves, where we came from and where we might go.